Today we're continuing our series called Christmas Perspectives. Uh, We're exploring the identities, the thoughts, the actions of the people who participated in the first advent of Jesus Christ. Uh, Advent means arrival. Christmas is the arrival of Jesus Christ. And today we're going to focus on King Herod and the religious leaders. Last week we looked at uh, the shepherds and the wise men. We called it a seeker's Christmas. This week we're looking at King Herod and the religious leaders, and we're calling it a skeptic's Christmas. Uh, For our purposes uh, today, a skeptic is someone who doubts the truth of religious teachings. Uh, These skeptics show that they had not embraced the truth of the birth of the newborn king, the Messiah. Uh, They may have known about the coming of the Messiah, but they did not embrace the truth that Jesus was him. And their skepticism led them to uh, some interesting, even disturbing actions. And so we'll take a look at what those are. Matthew 2, verses 1 and 2. Let's look at this. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem, asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, Herod the king was also known as Herod the Great or Herod the First because there was a string of nine uh, Herods, and he's the first one, he's the great one. He ruled in Israel from 37 B.C. to 4 A.D. So Herod the Great ruled over Christ's birth. Later, uh, Herod, Herod Antipas, different guy, ruled over John the Baptist's beheading and Christ's crucifixion. So we have the name Herod used for both of them. They're two different people, two different times. Now, Herod the Great was a master builder. Uh, He had built numerous structures throughout the Roman Empire. He built pagan temples, amphitheaters, colosseums, palaces, fortresses. I mean, the guy was a great builder. And he had magnificently restored the temple in Jerusalem, which should have made him popular with the Jewish people. But Herod was such a tyrannical, self-serving ruler that it didn't do him any good. Um, In fact, he just mercilessly taxed the people in order to make himself personally rich, in order to fund these big building projects that he was doing everywhere. Uh, Herod was ruthless, he was paranoid, murderous. Uh, In a word, Herod was dangerous. Uh, He assassinated political rivals, uh, even members of his own family, including one of his nine wives and two of her brothers, even one who was the high priest. And Herod assassinated three of his own sons who threatened him. So he held his title jealously, tenaciously. He dealt swiftly, cruelly with any perceived threat to his position. So today we're going to learn why King Herod and why the religious leaders in Jerusalem refused to seek the Savior. Uh, Let's take a look at the first reason for rejecting the Savior. On your notes on the screen here, the first reason is fear. Fear. King Herod was deeply disturbed. And the word there means he's troubled, anxious, fearful when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. I mean, what did they hear? What did Herod hear? What did everyone in Jerusalem hear that had them uh, troubled, anxious, fearful? Well, they heard the wise men had come into town. You know, we don't know how many wise men there were. You know, our graphics and Christmas cards and stuff, we always show these three guys riding the camel across the dark night. Well, there were three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but three gifts don't mean there were only three people could have been three types of gifts, lots of people bringing multiple gifts. And so we don't know how many people uh, came, how many wise men there were. We don't know how many people came with them. 
Uh, we talked about it last week. You know, they traveled uh, 800 miles at least, maybe farther through hostile desert lands. They had to have enough men, enough arms, enough provision, enough livestock to get them where they needed to go. And so this entourage is large enough that when it arrives in Jerusalem, it causes Herod to be concerned. It causes the, the Jewish leaders to be concerned. Everyone in Jerusalem is concerned because the Jewish people, they, they, they understood invasion and occupation. I mean, they, they understood that just the sight of armed outsiders coming into town would have been enough to raise their level of concern and put them on the defensive, especially when these outsiders then start asking questions about this new king that's supposed to be there. So Herod was disturbed because he was the king of the Jews, and he had no intention of being displaced by anyone, not even a rightful king that the Jewish people might, might accept or appreciate even more. So he's afraid somebody's going to try and take his throne. But neither Herod nor the religious leaders are excited when these wise men from a foreign country show up and start asking questions about a new king, about a new Messiah. Now, how are we like Herod? You know, none of us that, that I know of are ruling a kingdom. I mean, if you're here today and you're ruling a kingdom, uh, come see me after the service. In fact, I'd even say if you manage a Burger King or a Dairy Queen, stop by. I'd be happy to, happy to talk and talk with you. So none of us are ruling, but we certainly assert sovereignty over our own lives. Uh, you know, some of us will not allow anyone, even Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, to rule over us. Uh, we reject him because we think he might interfere with our lifestyles and our careers and our relationships. He, he might, you know, require morality and kindness in how we deal with people. He might even expect us to consult him before we make decisions. So we don't want to obey him. We, we keep him off of the throne of our lives. We've got a little minimal presence he can have over here in a corner somewhere, but it, he's not reigning supreme in our lives. Sure, we'll call on him in a crisis when all our other resources are exhausted. We'll, we'll consult him when nothing we've tried has worked out. We'll even blame him when things don't go well. But beyond that, we want him to stay in his place and butt out of our personal lives. We're willing to give him lip service. We'll even call ourselves Christians, but we don't want him ruling as king over our lives. What position does Christ have in your life? I mean, do you serve him as king? Or have you positioned him to where he, he responds to your beck and call? He does what you desire. Uh, maybe you're afraid to accept Christ as Lord because it would mean that a threat to your sovereignty, your autonomy, the way you lead your life. Maybe you have some fear of this new king. Matthew 2.4, Herod called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? Now, the chief priests, leading priests, and these um, religious leaders, the, the chief priests, they oversaw the temple activities. They were on a rotating basis, and they would do the sacrifices and the religious rituals in the temple. The teachers of religious law, sometimes they're called scribes, they were responsible. They're the official interpreters of the Old Testament. They would tell you what the Old Testament meant and how you need to live according to it. So in this passage, we see that Herod knew about the coming of the Messiah because he knew who to ask when the wise men wanted to know where he was born. 
So this gives us another reason for rejecting the Savior. Number two on your notes, indifference. Indifference, Matthew 2, 5, and 6. He asked these religious leaders, where is the Messiah going to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people. And so he asked him, where is the Messiah going to be born? And they immediately take him to Micah 5.2. They knew the prophecy that, that you know, Micah declared that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. So they knew exactly where he was going to be born. They knew the scriptures. They knew the messianic prophecies. They served a people who were eagerly awaiting the Messiah. I mean, the Jews had been hopefully looking for the Messiah for centuries. In fact, they still are. And particularly in this era of Roman occupation and oppression, the nation longed for the Messiah to come to set them free. So these Jewish theologians, they knew all the information about the Messiah. They'd studied the scriptures backward and forward. They'd memorized it. But none of them had traveled six miles to Bethlehem to check it out. You know, they were more interested in maintaining their positions of religious authority than they were in discovering whether the Messiah had arrived. They're indifferent. They didn't care. They ignored the birth of the Savior. Why? Because they felt they didn't need him. They kept the law. They followed their system. They're they're bound up in their own self-righteous behavior. Their, their, Their religious activity was focused on them. And what they did. They'd been the unquestioned authorities on God. They weren't going to allow anyone, even this supposed Messiah, to come in and replace them as God's spokesman. In fact, when Jesus began his public ministry some 30 years later, these men became his principal adversaries. They're the ones who manipulated the Romans into arresting, trying, and crucifying Christ. Now you might say, how how are we like these religious leaders, these rabbis and priests? Well, we become like these religious leaders when we grow comfortable in our own religious practice. So comfortable that we lose sight of our need of a personal Savior. You know, we let what we do in church, the good things, the giving, the serving, the going, we let those things become our hope, become our redemption, instead of seeing our need for a Savior. You know, some of us have a difficulty becoming true Christians because we've been ritualized, baptized, catechized, confirmed. We think we're going to get to God on our own merit. We think it's going to be based on the good things that we do. And these religious trappings, the inactivities, they become a substitute for a personal relationship with Christ, a personal dependence on a Savior. And sometimes those of us who grew up Protestant, you know, we'll point at liturgical churches and and we'll say, well, we don't have any rituals, we don't have any robes, we don't have any candles, we don't have any of that stuff, no incense, we don't have any of that. And what that means is we just have less style. That's what that means, okay? But we can be just as religious, just as ritualized with the idea of, you know, I walked the aisle, I prayed a prayer, I've been baptized, you know, how do you know that you are a believer? Well, I got baptized. I went to catechism. I got confirmed. I, I take communion. None of those are a reason to believe that you have truly been born again. You know, being born again is always transformational, internal. It's not because of a procedure or a process or an action. It's always you becoming a brand new person inside. 
Now, there is nothing wrong with learning the catechism. There's nothing wrong with confirmation or baptism or communion. Please hear me on that. I'm not taking a shot at those things. I mean, we dedicate children. We're going to do parent-child dedications next week. We do baptisms. We're going to do baptisms the week after that. But those things should never be more than an encouragement, more than a support to you having a personal faith, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Religious ritual, religious practice, no matter how sincere, is worthless if you don't have an internal, personal heart connection with Christ as Savior. And so the question we need to ask is, is are we indifferent to Him because we got our own thing going on? You know, when was the last time you felt genuine relief because you had a Savior? When was the last time you saw your own sin to the degree that you just verbally or even mentally cried out, God, save me from myself? I mean, I I see my ugly attitudes and actions. I hear my awful words. God, deliver me from me. I need you to save me. You know, are you desperate for a Savior? Now, not many people in that day would openly oppose Christ. And so these religious leaders had to be very careful how they went about this later on. In fact, they had to accuse Jesus of blasphemy so they could appear to be righteous when they put him to death. And not many of us would openly denounce Christ today. Certainly not those who come to church and really not many people in our culture. You know, few, if any of us, openly oppose Christ but many of us simply ignore him. You know, many of us relegate him to just this little space over here because we don't think we need him most of the time. And sure, we'll, we'll trot him out like life insurance right as we're dying. You know, as a pastor over 25 years, it's always amazing to me how many people you discover they're a believer after they're dead. You know, I mean, there the guy is in the coffin. Oh, yeah, he's a believer. He believes sometimes, some point. I mean, you can never tell it by his life, but... You know, I mean, do you see your personal need for a Savior? Do you see it? We wonder why, why we're indifferent. Well, we'll be indifferent if we don't recognize our need for redemption, for forgiveness, for salvation, if we don't see our crying need for a Savior. Once you see that, you won't rely on religious practice. You won't serve Christ out of indifference. You will serve Christ with a passion because you know what he's done for you. Third thing, Savior can also be rejected through pretense. Matthew 2, 7, Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. You know, the religious leaders wouldn't go check it out, so Herod sent the wise men down there to go search diligently for the child. And then he said, when you find him, come back and tell me who he is so I can worship him too. But Herod had murdered members of his own family in order to preserve his power. He's certainly not above killing this newborn king that's a threat. But he pretended to have a desire to worship the newborn king just so he could get close enough to him to kill him. Do you know our pretense can prevent us from truly knowing Christ? And you may think, well, what in the world is is he talking about? Why would anyone pretend to know Christ? Why put on an act? Why have a charade of faith? Well, there are 
There are reasons why people will, will say, say defensively, I'm a Christian. You ever hear that? You ever say that? I'm a Christian. You know, sometimes people will, will, will say, I'm a Christian because you don't want somebody testifying to you about their vibrant faith. You, you don't want them to challenge your stale faith. So they'll start in and you I'm a Christian, just to shut them off. Sometimes uh, people will say, I'm a Christian, just so a Christian girl will accept a date with them. Yeah. I mean, you'd be astounded how many times I have these sweet Christian ladies show up and say, you know, I'm going to marry this guy. Hasn't been in church for two decades, but he's a Christian. He loves the Lord. That's what he says. You know, sometimes if someone confronts you about the lifestyle you're living, you'll fire back, I'm a Christian. You know, who are you to judge me? I'm a believer. Nobody's perfect. Well, right, nobody's perfect. Nobody expects you to be perfect. But... Gee, it'd sure be nice if you were kind, or honest, or patient, or even tried to avoid sin. Sometimes people claim, I'm a Christian, just to avoid having to face the true state of their faith. God's Spirit is convicting you about an area of sin in your life, and rather than respond with repentance, you, you, you throw up the defense, I'm a Christian. I've been baptized, I've catechized, I'm confirmed, I've walked the aisle, I've done all that. But when we truly know Christ, we want to know Him more fully, more intimately. We want to yield our lives, yield our wills more fully to Him. We want to give up our sin rather than defend it. And so this idea that I'm a Christian held up as a defense to keep sinning may be an indicator that I'm not a Christian after all. I may be operating with some pretense. Because when we know Christ, when we appreciate our need, when we see Him as our Savior, we want to worship Him. You know, are you bored to death with worship? Is there no stirring in your spirit? Then assess your soul. Are you stingy toward Christ? Stingy with your time, your talent, even your treasure? Then assess your soul. Are you pretending for others? I mean, you like coming to church, you like these people, you'd like to fit in, but you don't want Christ to address your sin. I mean, that's like going to the doctor and saying, you know, doctor, don't tell me I have cancer because I don't want you to hurt my feelings. You know, don't prescribe a bunch of treatment for me because I don't want you to disrupt my life. But we don't want to pretend for others or even deceive ourselves that we have a faith that we really don't have. Don't reject Christ out of pretense. Fourth thing, we can also reject Christ out of anger. And, and this anger comes out of a loss of trust. It comes out of hurt. Now, Matthew 2.12, When it was time to leave, they, the wise men, returned to their own country by another route. For God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him. So he sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. You know, Herod had gotten these guys in there and grilled them about, when did you see this star? And, and they gave him a date about two years before. And so Herod ordered all the, the soldiers to go down and kill all the boys two years and younger in and around Bethlehem. And we don't know how many this would have been. It could have been anywhere from 10 to 30 boys of that age. 
But Herod's approach was, well, if you wise men won't identify the one, I'll kill them all. I mean, that is just a haughty, brutal pride. And the scriptures tell us that an angel warned Mary and Joseph to take Jesus and flee uh, to Egypt before the slaughter of these innocent children. So Herod didn't thwart God's plan. In fact, he fulfilled it. It says in Matthew 2.17, Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. The prophet Jeremiah used Rachel, the wife of Israel, kind of the matriarch of the nation, used her uh, to represent all Jewish mothers mourning for their murdered infant sons. Herod didn't thwart God's plan, he fulfilled it. But Herod wasn't interested in fulfilling prophecy. He had little interest in the Jewish faith. He had no trust or interest in God. His one concern was preserving his power. He was concerned with himself and what mattered to him. And he would protect himself even if it meant killing God's son. You know, some of us have little interest in the Savior because we don't trust God. Some of us are are harboring an anger that flows out of a mistrust of God. We're disappointed in how our lives have turned out. We're disappointed in the state of our life today. We went through a divorce. Maybe our parents went through a divorce. We lost a child, lost a loved one. We've never found a spouse. Maybe a job fell through. And we are indignant that God hasn't done what we think he needed to do for us. And so the loss and tragedies in life that truly hurt us rather than causing us to flee to God for comfort cause us to stand away from God in accusation, in mistrust, in anger. And because of our quiet fury within, we reject God. We deny the reality of His existence. And if we don't deny His existence, we at least deny Him access into our life. Do you trust God? Or are you disappointed about something? Are you angry over some event in your life? Or are you just living as though God's not even a factor in your life? Because what we can do is because of that deep-seated anger, this mistrust, this disappointment, is we just remove the influence of Christ from our lives. Yeah, I believe in Him. I believe I'll go to heaven when I die, but Christ isn't going to have a presence in my life while I live here on earth because I don't trust Him. I'm just too hurt for that. You know, a lot of the hostility about Christianity, even about Christian symbols, comes from this source. When someone is bent out of shape about the posting of a cross or the Ten Commandments in a classroom or public space, when someone pitches a fit about a store clerk saying Merry Christmas, it's not about free speech or religious oppression. It's about the anger, the hurt that they harbor in their heart toward a God who disappointed them. Because here's the deal. If God is not real, then who cares if there's a manger scene in the city square? I mean, they don't mind Santa Claus. Well, if God's not real, he's no different than Santa Claus. Where's the harm? Why the anger? Why the hostility? Why the rage to eliminate Christmas and all things Christian from public forums? I suspect it's because people are angry with a God who's hurt them over something. 
I don't think there's even true atheism. I don't even think it exists. Because the Bible tells us, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has written eternity on the heart of every man. God has written eternity in the heart of every man. Deep down in their heart, every person knows there is a God. You know, when, when a crisis happens, people flee to God. And you'll have a hard time finding an exception to that. You know, every person in the, their core reality knows there's a God. And the most outrageous thing you can do is deny his existence. The Bible says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And it's interesting because a, a, a better translation of the Hebrew there is not that the fool has said there is no God. It's better to say the fool has said no God. See the difference? not denying the existence, you're just telling him, no. So you see people in our culture, and they're attacking his presence. They're trying to rip it out of the schools, try to rip it out of the public space. It's not out of a concern of First Amendment. It's out of an anger with God. Because it's rarely pointed at Hinduism, Buddhism, even Islam. You can quote Mahatma Gandhi, Dalai Lama, Mohammed. You can sing John Lennon's atheist anthem, Imagine, all you want. Nobody cares. They get all gushy. It's just as religious as Silent Night. It's just the religion of an atheist. But as soon as you start quoting Jesus Christ and the Bible, they start screaming separation of church and state. You know, in my head, whenever I hear that phrase, separation of church and state, I always picture Gomer Pyle yelling, citizens arrest, citizens arrest. (laughs) Separation of church and state, separation of church and state. I just always want to say, what are you so hurt about? What are you angry at at God about? Because they're mad at a God they claim doesn't exist. So where are you? Are you trusting God? Or are you skeptical of Him? Are you mad at Him? Do you fear Him? Some some of us fear God. We hold Him at arm's length because we've never truly experienced the love of God. And we've learned some information about God. We've formed an opinion about God, but we've never been embraced by the love of God. I mean, have you had that moment? Have you had that experience? 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love. There is no fear in love. And that's that's an absolute truth. That's true in our marriages, it's true in our friendships, it's true even in our relationship with God. Perfect love drives out fear. I don't fear anyone who's going to love me perfectly. I don't fear anyone who's just going to try and love me with a good, solid effort. I'm not afraid of somebody who's trying to love me. Fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. So how do you overcome your skepticism? I don't know a better verse to point you to than than John 3.16. For God so loved the world. That's you. That's you. That he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Circle that word, whoever. Whoever. That's you. Are you a whoever? If you ever experience the love of God that is expressed tangibly through God sending His Son to die for you, 
Do you understand that Christ came at Christmas for you? Christ died on Good Friday on the cross for you? Christ was raised Easter Sunday morning for you. When you connect those dots that that happened for you, you won't be afraid. You won't be indifferent. You won't pretend. And you won't be angry. You won't be a skeptic. You will be a believer. You will be a whoever. And God will give you new, abundant, eternal life. Simple as ABC on your outline. A, you just need to acknowledge my fear, indifference, pretense, and anger. Just need to admit it. Own it. Because we all got it. We all got it. We just have to own it. And then believe that Christ was born, crucified, and raised from the dead for me. You just believe this Jesus, that baby in the manger, that man on the cross, that resurrected Savior, I believe it. He's the one. He's the one for me. And then you choose to follow Christ as your Lord and Savior. You make a choice. You make a decision. Let's pray together. If you're here today and you've never made that decision for Christ, I'd invite you just to open your heart and life to him. Just say, God, I, I believe it. Today I, I am connecting the dots. I believe in this baby that was born. I believe in that man who died. I believe in the Savior and King who's been raised again. I place my faith and trust in him. God, please, pour out your love on me. Give me that new, abundant, eternal life that you've promised. For I believe in Jesus' name, amen.